Watch it! I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. My fans can be the harshest critics, you know. And they often are. A wife is often the harshest critic <laughs> of her husband. <laughs> I thought I was invincible. That's what you're, you're trained to believe as a sports person. There was four million people in Ireland who knew much more about managing <laughs> football teams than I did. When it comes to music, I can spoof it the best. Your sporting career is the best time you'll have, and, you know, you have to hang on to it for as long as your life, because everything else is pretty crappy. And this is not lies. Stephen Rochford has never spoken to Jimmy McGinnis in his life. You are welcome along to the Saturday panel, the first Saturday panel of 2021, another seminal year in all our lives as we deal with the ongoing coronavirus pandemic uh, and its re relevance football as well, which is something that we will discuss um, over the next hour or so and into the football show as well with the lads later. It's Dave McIntyre, Louise Galvin and Timmy McCarthy across various parts of the country. Where are you all actually? Starting with you, Timmy McCarthy. I am actually in, in South Roscommon. Le Carol. So just outside that alone. Le Caro, John Caulfield country. Oh, no, I'm actually in Kiltoom, St. Bridget's country. Ah, yes, and you've a good relationship with him as well. Let's get to Louise Galvin signing in from where? Signing in from Kerry, yeah. Relocated back down to the kingdom there um, after the last lockdown. So I'll, um, I'll be coming in from the kingdom for, for the, the rest of my life, I'd say. The rest of your life? <laughs> yeah, moved home. Oh wow! And was that like uh, was that to do with the kind of the pandemic, or was it just a lifestyle, a life choice rather? Um, it was probably always on the cards, but it was a bit accelerated, um, particularly with finishing up with sevens, uh, finishing up as I suppose a professional athlete. I didn't need to be based in Dublin anymore, and then it was a case of um, himself. He had moved up um, himself. Because I need himself. Yeah, the yeah. husband. You have to be a bit nicer to him than that now. <laughs> Because we, I needed to be in Dublin. So when we looked at it and we didn't technically have to be there anymore, we thought um, if we have any more lockdowns, there's plenty of mountains to be climbing in Kerry, so we might relocate down there. I believe you were and up to climbing, climbing a bit of a mountain yesterday as well. Yeah, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. In fairness, the weather has been pretty fantastic um, and the views are pretty good. So what else would you be doing? Dave McIntyre, could you live in rural Ireland and abandon all the pleasures of city life? <laughs> the pleasures of city life, yeah. What, what, um, what they used to be, anyway, from what I remember. Exactly, yeah. I, I, I believe I could. I'm not sure I could convince the um, those in my family who have probably more of an influence on such matters than I to do so. But I would imagine that I'll be where I am, which isn't far from you at the moment in North Dublin, Johnny. I'd imagine I'll be here for the rest of my life. So while I would like to spend as much time in the country as possible, a permanent relocation is very unlikely. Well, in fairness, Timmy, if you were to live in rural Ireland, Kerry wouldn't be the worst choice. Well, Johnny, I'm a Corkman, so I'm only, <laughs> I'm only abiding in Roscommon. My, my home and my heart in Cork, and definitely I'd have to say a very good second choice, which is nice to be able to say that on the rare occasions we can get to say that about him in football. So Kerry would be my second choice, but Cork would be my heart and my love, Johnny. Yeah, well, if, if Kerry is like, I don't know, the, the most amazing place I've visited in Ireland, Barra Peninsula wouldn't be far off. No, but uh, do you know what's also a brilliant place to visit is Donegal. Mm. Uh, Donegal mm, actually yeah. and, and Kerry are very similar. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in, in Kerry, obviously, doing sport over the years. And uh, the Bear Peninsula and West Coast is outstanding. But Donegal, when I, I've gone there, over, oh, it's actually easier to get there from where I live now. Um, it's about a three-hour drive. When I was living in Cork, it was six or seven hours. But Donegal is beautiful. Actually, it's very. It's the closest thing I've seen to Kerry. So, Louise, that's a big plug I'm giving you there now. It's the closest thing I've seen oh, to Kerry. Oh, Timmy, I have to say, we did. We um, spent our summer holidays up in Donegal this um, August, and uh, now 
Donegal's probably getting a bit carried away with himself saying it was nearly better than Kerry. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't say I'd go that far. But I think it doesn't have the same level of tourism, so it's a bit quieter and easier to get around. So, I mean, I wouldn't go near, uh, I suppose, Dingle or Clarny Town Centre in the height of the summer there, whereas Donegal, it seemed you still had that incredible beauty and the buzz, but it was a lot more accessible and not as kind of tourism saturated. So I actually think Donegal is a fabulous place as well. And West Cork is, is pretty good too, Timmy. So we, we'll, we'll keep the pleasantries up. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's now 3-0 to Spurs over Leeds as well. Um, and well, just to extrapolate on the on the point we're making, if, if we'll start something of a review of the year, um, how hard is it, Louise, for... You know, for your own county to compete now with the likes of Dublin in in Gaelic football, um, you can talk about it, men's or women's, really at this stage. Because uh, I, I I don't know, was this a how how would you describe the year in Gaelic football? We had the amazing success of Tipperary and Cavan, but ultimately we had an All Ireland Championship that didn't really have any competitive edge to it again. Yeah, well, I I'd even take it a step further back, Danny, first and say to even have the championship if we're really reviewing the year was phenomenal. Mm. I certainly know for that second lockdown, um, when the evenings were getting shorter, it is what kept certainly my weekends going um, was and the amount of games that were live streamed and I have to say even the ladies football um, started Friday, Friday evening games was um, it was a really good thing to start. Um, so the amount, just even getting the championships run and I think we'd only one game, the Sligo Galway game that didn't go ahead like kudos to the GA, to the LGFA, to the Camogie Association um, for the amount of games that got ran during the pandemic. But then when we get to the nitty gritty, I mean, we all had the fantastic um, provincial finals day of Ulster and, and Munster final day, which were phenomenal. But I guess on the end, at the end of it all, like Dublin six in a row without ever really being pushed to the pin of their collar, it does strike a little bit of, I suppose, fear into the rest of um into the rest of the the counties that are preparing for 2021. But I think to every GA lover, because even at this stage, like we were living in Dublin and the crack is even less because it's it's nearly becoming so uh, routine that they're going to push ahead and get further, to get stronger, that I think even Dub supporters at this stage are starting to feel a bit like, hang on, this, is, this may, may not necessarily be the best thing for the game overall. Well, say Timmy, when when Cork beat Kerry, which was a one of the one of like maybe it wasn't a great game necessarily, but it was a fantastic victory for Cork. What's the feeling like after that? Because you've beaten the kingdom, but you know you're not going to be Dublin. Well, we definitely got away with 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 with, 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 with that game really because you know Kerry to me on on the day, uh, I always felt Cork had a chance. I thought Kerry was looking forward. I thought Kerry were, were a team that was getting ready for future games, not for the Cork game or the Munster final, but for for the All-Ireland Series, and were caught. And there's no doubt that we caught them on the day. Cork did say it well. Cork did as well as they could, Johnny, in a very average game. You know, Cork were honest on the day, and they kept going to the very end, and obviously they got a goal in, 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 the, in the dying seconds. But I never felt Cork were going to even, you know, progress against Tipperary. I just thought Tipperary had better scoring forwards, and I felt that that could be a, a banana that um, we would slip on. So, you know, when you look at the All-Ireland Series and, and look at the, the football this year, right, obviously Dublin won six in a row. But I actually believe they're beatable. I'm actually one of the people that believe that Dublin are beatable. But, you know, you have to be able to compete with them for 75 minutes or 77 mm. minutes. And I think Kerry could have done that if they had, you know, got through, you know, the, the Monsters campaign that really was in their way. And they have the talent and I think that they, they have the, the, the strength in the squad. 
But, you know, you have to give Dublin credit. It's a phenomenal record to win six in a row. And, you know, they've brought new players in. They have a new manager. Um, but I still believe that they're beatable. And if you look at the, the six titles they've won, okay, in all our final days, they could have easily lost two or three of those finals. You know, they could have, I mean, they, Kerry took me to replay Mayo. They were one-point games. Like, so it's not that they were blowing everybody out until this year. And I think what happened this year is that, you know, Kerry and Donegal self-imploded during their own uh, journey without getting get a chance to have a crack at those. But they were the two teams that, if you look at it from the outside, had a real chance. Nobody else had. Mayo did okay, but um, just, you know, need, need to get, you know, more mental strength to deliver on the big day. But I just thought that Kerry left Parky Keeve. No, as a Corkman, I was thrilled. But they left Parky Keeve with regret to say, you know, and a great lesson for all of us in sport. Win what's in front of you. Play the game in front of you. And don't be thinking of the next day because, as Kerry found out in Parky Keeve, there's no next day if you don't do the business on the day that it is, you know. Did you enjoy the championship, Dave? I did. I enjoyed it immensely. I mean, Louise is correct. It was incredible that the GA and the Mogi Association and the Ladies Football Association managed to get the whole thing played and up and running and that we only did lose the one game. And I know the end point, the ultimate destination will have left an awful lot of people cold, perhaps even some Dublin supporters. But the journey to that Dublin victory is as enjoyable as I can recall for many years. I think it was because we were we felt blessed that there was something we could watch in those dark lockdown evenings on a Saturday and a Sunday. I think some of the wins and some of the provincial championship victories that these counties enjoyed made it incredibly memorable. You've mentioned Cork. Louise mentioned that, that double provincial final success for Cavan and Tipperary on the same day. Um, Mayo coming back and, and winning another Connacht title. I thought that there were some of those games that would be up there in terms of their results and the shock factor that would be up there with any other year. The fact that we were back to the old school knockout, that those of us who are old enough to remember the pre-qualifier era up till 2001, there was something very special about that as well. I don't think it's here to stay, obviously, and there, there is a very good reason why the GA looked at the backdoor system. We don't want teams training for nine months for one game. But ultimately, we ended up in the same place, and it did obviously trigger this debate to which there is probably not one solution. It's a whole multitude of factors that will have to be played into any potential solution where people are worried about the way things are going with Dublin and the way the county system has been run overall. It, we shouldn't forget, though, that you know Kerry should have beaten Dublin last year. It took that extraordinary turnover from Kevin McManaman and that you know real bottle from Dean Rock to finish off that move on the loop around to force that replay. Mayo will feel they've left at least two All-Irelands behind them against Dublin. Kerry will feel they left the 2011 All-Ireland final behind them against Dublin. It could have been such a very different decade. I was discussing with a Mayo man about two weeks ago how different this decade may have looked if they'd beaten Donegal in 2012. Mm. How many All-Irelands might that Mayo team have come away with? Because ultimately that would have been the kickstart that Mayo so desperately needed. So it isn't just Dublin that have beaten them in All-Ireland finals. So overall, I'm delighted the championship was played. I think it was incredibly memorable for many reasons. But... All of those outside Dublin will just point to the end result and think, what was it all about? Well, you, you, you mentioned the back door there. I'll go to you, Louise. I, like, as a Galway man, um, you know, the back door would have, would have done us uh, a major service this year, as it did in the Hurling, obviously. It gave us a second chance because it lost to Mayo in a toss-up of a game, really, in, in Pear Stadium. Um, but the more I watched the championship, uh, the more I enjoyed, because um, I, I am a bit of a soft for nostalgia, but I loved that aspect of losing your out. And as much as you don't want teams, as Dave says, you don't want teams training nine months, inter-county team, inter teams train 
playing way too much as it is when lads should be training with their clubs and the inter-county thing should be maybe what it was in the old days where it was um, you know a, a certain part of the year but the club game was was given um, far more kind of credit than it, than it is now in the sense of players actually training with their clubs and if you did go back to the old knockout system in theory it would make it a little bit um, you know more uh, I suppose random in that Dublin might get beaten whilst at the same time for the for the smaller counties they wouldn't be in it but you could look at maybe revising that part of the championship as well but would you like it to go back to the old way or is that never going to happen? No I'm a fan of the backdoor system. Um, and Are again, you a fan of the Super 8s? I was, yeah, I like the the concept of it. Um, what I'm a fan of is trying things. Mm. I don't think, you know, it this kind of idea of doing the same thing all the time because that's the way it's always done, that's what I'm not a fan of. So, like, for example, the black card causes a lot of consternation, but at least we're trying it or, you know, the mark this year, it creates debate. But what I like is that we're, we're trying to implement new rules to adapt to the game. Um I think with the Super 8s, I mean, if you're a team in Leinster at the moment, if Dublin are going to get beaten, which someday it's going to have to happen, it's not going to happen in Leinster, I don't think. It's going to happen beyond that. So if you're one of the other counties in Leinster, then what what hope have you got if you draw them in the first round, second round, third round? Whereas at least if you have a backdoor system and you do meet a Dublin early days, well, you still get a bit of a run of trying to create some sort of level of achievement for that year. Um, so I am a fan of the backdoor system from that point of view. Now, where it can work, and Timmy would, I'm not sure if Timmy would agree with me here, but for example, in basketball, there's a cup and a league and they runs pretty much simultaneously over the season. And the cup is massive and it's usually paid off in January and it's knockout. But you have a league running all year long so that teams are still able to, you're, once you're knocked out of cup, even though it is your championship, you still have a league for another three months. Now, I'm not saying you're going to restructure the whole thing. But that's an, I wouldn't like to see the cup change in basketball change into a backdoor system because it takes away that element of straight knockout but I think if you're playing you know a league early in the year and then you're going into your knockout at the best time of the year weather wise when teams should be really hitting form and then you're knocked out um, at the first stage and you're not playing again until you start training in November for a league again which is meant to be the second competition I don't think that's a good um, format it certainly worked this year with Covid and with the shortened time scale and it gave us plenty of excitement but I think overall I'm not necessarily a fan and maybe that's coming from someone from a stronger county as well who we mm. certainly would have benefited this year from a, a backdoor system but I also think from the point of view weaker county um, in its current format of having you know your 32 county football all Ireland that you or 33 beyond 34 whatever it is that you have that ability to maybe string together a few uh, games in the qualifiers as well yeah because it's when you see you know the the joy of antrim winning a competition in in Coe park and all that timmy like it's it, it's far more enjoyable from the neutrals perspectives to to see um a small county doing well than it is to see a great team becoming even greater. Or maybe that's my perspective, but I, do, I don't know the answer to this. Do you, would you agree with what Louise is saying in terms of the basketball system? Or okay, so first of all, I think it's whether, whether you're you know one of the strong counties like Dublin, Kerry, etc., or whether you're one of the weaker counties like Antrim or that. You know, everyone is meant to win, so you know, and everyone should celebrate their wins and and, and, and be sad about their losses. So you know, everyone's entitled to. Um, the thing I think about the, 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 the championship at the moment, I love the championship. I thought the, the knockout was absolutely brilliant this year. I just thought, no, it was forced on us by COVID. But I do believe that, you know, uh, if it's developed Louise's point, we should try something. We have a league that in, 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 
in GA is only used really to get ready for a championship. And that's the failing. The real failing here is that, you know, the reason we have backdoors and the reason we have, are, are trying to give the team, the weaker teams particularly, a second chance, even though the backdoor has always favoured the strong teams who, who got caught one day, like take Kerry this year, got caught in Cork. If there was a backdoor, they'd have got back in their own in that sense. So it has always favoured the strong teams with one or two exceptions over the years. But I've always felt, and I've said this many times over the years, we should make the league, okay, and championship seamless. It should be part of the one thing. So you could have a league where, okay, where everybody plays in the league, like your Super 8, but it's over the entire, the entire season. Mm. And then the top teams get to a knockout. So you could have the top two teams in each of the eight groups, if you take 32 or 34 teams, um, play in the league situation. The top two go on to the knockout championship, so we call it the All-Ireland Championship. And the bottom two go out to a place, and they get a knockout situation. So everybody gets plenty of games. Everybody gets a chance to make sure that they have a chance of winning, irrespective of the level they're at. And everybody gets a chance to play against all teams and have, have an environment where that, you know, you could have Antrim playing Dublin in, in, in a league format. You know, take it away from Cork or from Munster, uh, Leinster, Connacht and all. So which would have a real ramification for many traditionalists. Mm. But we've got to try something different because what you can't have Okay, is year on year, irrespective of if it's Dublin or Kerry in the 70s or the 80s or 90s, okay, you can have a situation where it is very predictable right now as we sit here on the 2nd of January to say who's likely to win the Sam McGuire in 2021. Obviously, Dublin. Then you have Kerry. You might have Mayo. You might have Donegal. And you might have a Gora Johnny or a Tyrone as an outsider. But that's it. And that's not, that's not a good environment well, well, where. Yeah, well, well, on on that, Dave, say like in soccer, um, you know, outsiders can win and shocks can happen because there are so few scores in the game. You can score and you can defend and so on and so forth. In Gaelic football in Hurland, there are so many scores. It's far, far harder over the course of seventy minutes for the outsider to win. And then if you add in professionalism, the gap between the big and the small is so big that it takes a lot of the fun out of it. But I don't know the answer to it. I I do think if Dublin end up bolting up next year to a, to a seventh All-Ireland and win the final by six, seven points. Um, people will get fed up with that aren't from Dublin, and including people from Dublin who themselves probably aren't enjoying it as much as they would have years ago anyway. Yeah, look, let's face it, there's no right or wrong answer here, and there is no silver bullet when it comes to this problem, because no matter what sort of tweak you make to the championship structure, there is nothing that will de- dilute the demographic advantages that Dublin have, the mm. financial advantages that they have, the fact that their players are no more than half an hour, 45 minutes from training, that the county board don't have to play the mileage to their players that every other county board has to do, um, and the sheer playing numbers and the sheer amount of clubs and the way the organisation is run and set up in Dublin. The credit has to go to the Dublin County Board and that they have managed to finally harness all of those advantages where before, back in the 80s and 90s in particular, they didn't come close to doing that and that kept it competitive. But I don't know what the solution is and no matter what tweak we make to the competition, there will never be a situation whereby the weaker counties, so-called, are able going to be in a position where they can compete for the Sam Maguire. Mm. Now, I often do think that people kid themselves in looking back on eras gone by with rose tinted glasses and marvel at how competitive the championship used to be back then but if you take any given five or ten year sector of the last hundred odd years of the GA championship you were never able to sit down in January as Timmy discussed there and throw a blanket over eight or nine teams that could possibly win the All-Ireland it was never more than three or four 
And let's not forget the dominance that Kerry enjoyed. The fact that in the 1960s, for example, we had these great teams like Down and Galway that were so brilliant at what they were doing there was really only three or four teams that could possibly beat them then so we never had this wide open championship where 11 or 12 counties could possibly really fancy the chances of winning the all-ireland the the argument against the provincial championships was a sound one but what happened on that day when calvin and tipperary won the ulster and munster championships respectively that lent some credence to those who felt that the provincial championships still have a role to play in the championship Mm. because with dublin so prominent as they are there really is no way for counties to look beyond the provincial championship in terms of winning something. We saw what it meant to Tipperary and Cavan. We've seen how it important the Ulster Championship is to Donegal, despite the fact that they've completed in 10 finals over the last 11 or 12 years. It still means a huge amount to these counties. So when Timmy talked about the league and championship running alongside each other, I still think there is a role in some way for the provincial championships, whether or not it's linked to the All-Ireland as a whole, but at least give counties of the ilk of Cavan or Fermanagh, for example, the chance to win something within their own province before you then look beyond it. But we could be here till the cows come home. We have sat in many rooms. Their stakeholders have sat in many rooms over the years trying to devise a system that will bring some level of equality. And there are tweaks that can be made and you can re-spread the finances and you can try and bring other counties up rather than try to drag Dublin down. But at the end of the day, a county that has the population of about 1.4 million and 100 senior clubs, you're just never going to be able to dilute the effect that that has on the rest of the country. Well, this is speculative, Louise, but will there possibly be you know, a fallout from lockdown and from the year that we've had, just had that, um, you know, with people working from home, working remotely, that the idea of rural life will appeal to a lot more people and people may move out of like an extremely expensive um, capital city and people might live more in rural areas or are we totally clutching at straws here in terms of the population movement? Well, I suppose I'm a case in point of that exact mm. um, happening. I think it will happen. That's not going to change who's going to win the All-Ireland for the next 10 or 20 years. I mean, no. if you have an inter-county quality player, the chances are they're commuting back from whatever city it is and it's just the extra difficulties that they have in getting home to play for their local club and county. That's probably what's happening at the moment. Um, what it just means is maybe in 20, 30 years, do you have an increase in the generations that are now living in rural Ireland as opposed to in the cities? Um I think it it is starting to happen. We've seen trends like, I know house prices in the country have certainly gone up in the last while, but whether it's just a drop in the ocean, um, we're not going to see mass decentralisation, I guess, um, but we will see a little bit of people starting to move back to their rural counties, but I don't think it's enough to make a mass change um, such as, uh, like, I don't think it's going to hugely change the population of Dublin. Um, to be honest about it and like Dave's right we could be here till the cows come home and I also I I take his point it's not about bringing Dublin down it's trying to bring the standard of everyone up Um, it's not about trying to pull pull them back down because I for one I thoroughly enjoy watching uh, the style of football that they play the sheer athleticism and going back about 20 minutes to Timmy's point about how close a lot of um, the All-Irons at Dublin won were I completely agree with you Timmy but I think um, what really stood out for me with Dublin at that stage, and it is a product of um, probably even their access to strength, uh, to, to health performance and um, sports performance and sports science, is their conditioning. Mm. Because they, I mean, if you look at any of those All-Ireland finals, All-Ireland semi-finals, 50, 55 minutes in, 
I bet you they weren't ahead in a lot of those games in that kind of first, maybe in the first four or five All-Irelands. But it's in that last and 15 minutes, and by the last 15 minutes, I mean like from 60 on, pushing into the 75th minute, that's where they pull away. And again, is that a, the product of, we're talking about these small percentages, the idea is that their players have um, so much accessibility to uh, high-performance strength conditioning. They don't have that same travel commute time. Um, you know, they're not professionals, but they're very, very good at managing themselves and maybe have a little bit more, uh, I suppose, ability to do that because of the logistical setup, basically. Yeah, of course. Just briefly before we go to the, the break, uh, Louise, obviously the Dubs ladies winning four in a row. Is there is there a similar kind of, um, you know, whispers of concern in, in, in that sphere about where this is going? I think there is. Um, I think it's not as much of a, there wasn't as much of a gap as the Dublin men have at the moment. It's not quite as easy. But, um, and again, those Dublin girls, a lot of them lost three All-Ireland finals in a row before they, they finally um, won and now they have four in a row. Um, and again, I suppose the, the thing is like, the the money is being used well, the money that they're getting from AIG, we see they're fairly well um, sponsored. And this is fantastic this is brilliant by the way mm. but it's that professional mindset it's the administration level um and success is breeding success so out of that 1.4 million people or whatever it is that's in dublin 50 percent are female if those girls are looking up and now seeing the added exposure playing county for dublin ladies footballers it's going to encourage more and more gir girls to play and to try and reach that pinnacle um and that's going to breed further success so it's not just about the brilliant footballers they have at the moment but it's about what it's bringing along the line and that's fantastic but we need to try and make sure that around the country that's being um, promoted as well. Absolutely. We have a couple of cycling-related uh, uh, texts in that I'll get to after the news, and we'll talk more with the guys after 2 o'clock. The Saturday panel on Off The Ball. You're welcome back. It's Johnny Ward standing in for John Duggan, and we have Louise Galvin, Timmy McCarthy, and Dave McIntyre on the Saturday panel. Later on, we're going to have Gary Breen, Shane Keegan, and David Snade to discuss all things football in 2020 and 2021. Good luck with the latter, anyway. Um, text saying, Hi, lads. I was a professional bicycle trials rider for years here in Ireland. Just listen to the man who had issues with losing his bottle down a hill. Um, my tips would be learn how to skid would help your bike control immensely. Build your speed up gradually on the descent and your confidence will grow. But work on your bike control and you will get there. Happy New Year. Thanks a million to that texter. And if you enjoy cycling in Ireland, wait till you try cycling in the Canaries, the South France, Mallorca. It's amazing. Jim from Cork. Well, Jim, I'm actually training for a 312 UK in Mallorca uh, next year or this year rather so hopefully uh, hopefully that will happen any of you guys into the cycling take that as I know I, I, I dabble in a Johnny yeah I do it where I can um, I don't tend to do it too often in the winter though I don't trust my control as that texture was writing and on the wet roads that you encounter in winter but uh, yeah during the dryer months so we get out here and there well, I tell you one tell you. thing that I'll, I'll just get you on this as well Timmy the the um, I was one day in December, I think it was early to mid-December, um, I went out to Sea Point, and I actually wasn't cycling, but the amount of cyclists then got to Sea Point, and it was like three or four degrees, and the place was thronged with people jumping in for a swim. What a year we've had. Yeah, it's been, it's been a tough year. It's been, and it, it, you know, it's, and the, the next part of this year is going to be tough for all, for all of us. And, I mean, we've got to remember people have died, and that's the saddest thing, Johnny. But, mm. you know, people are cycling, people are walking. I walk, and I, I cycle a little, but, you know, not competitively, but I walk, and exercise regularly and there's a lot more people out because obviously you know we're locked down and you know in lockdown you know the great thing is that if people that fight by the rules they can travel within the five kilometers but it's a tough time it is a tough time for 
first. And I think what we've got to understand is that, you know, um, this, time, this day last year, if we were chatting, you know, we never heard of coronavirus. We never mm. thought of the impact of coronavirus. And this time next year, please God, the pandemic will be over if the vaccines work as, as, as is expected. And what we've got to do in the meantime is do the best we can. And we should do that on a daily basis. That's my philosophy, Johnny. Just do the best they can today. Don't be getting worried about tomorrow or worried about two weeks' time. We'll deal with those when they come. Just do deal with today. And just enjoy today for what today brings us. And today brings us, you know, Louise was all up in the mountains in the nice weather. And, you know, um, just enjoy today. And, you know, do the best we can. And don't be judging ourselves against all the difficulties that, that others have, you know, because we all have our own difficulties that we have to overcome the best way we can. And that's not easy for all of us. Absolutely, Timmy. And, and Louise as well, just to, I suppose, to follow on from what Timmy is saying there, the, um, the benefits of, of kind of getting yourself back in tune with nature and doing those things that were maybe, if not necessitated, facilitated by lockdown, you suddenly realise that, um, or certainly I did anyway, like the consumer lifestyle and all these things we worry about, how we look and um, the clothes we wear and the money we have kind of slightly goes out the window when you figure out, like, actually, there's a lot more to life than that. Absolutely. Um, like Johnny, the best best things in life are free and that's often mm. like a, a sunny day and getting out and about and meeting. And because it is the only way that you can potentially meet someone is outside with your, your social distancing. I think it has forced a lot more people to do it. And a good saying has been resurrected. I've heard a lot this year is there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothes. Um, what I have found, I have to say, is that I've been extremely lucky to have traveled the world and mm. seen the most incredible places. Ireland is one of the most beautiful places that we have and or that there is in this planet. And there's so much accessible on our doorstep. There's so many walkways and pathways. Um, and that's, you know, in fairness, there's a good few in, in urban centres as well as as those of us lucky to be stuck um, down in the sticks. So it has been an opportunity for people, <clears throat> excuse me, and even in terms of families to get out and about and to spend that time with each other and get off the phones, get off the tablets, get away maybe from that level of consumerism. We don't need to keep buying new clothes um, or new gadgets because at the end of the day, no one's going anywhere anyway. Uh, so certainly there's been some positives that have been probably forced on us because of this pandemic. And I'm sure as we hopefully come out the other side of it, whether it be the tail end of 2021, that we'll continue to take them forward with us because the benefit of exercise, like I'm a physiotherapist as well, and I've returned to the hospital working here in Kerry, the benefits of exercise from a physical and mental health point of view are just humongous. And to be honest, if it was a tablet, we'd all be taking it. So I think we're all starting to figure out that actually even getting your 30 minutes a day of moderate high intensity is so important just to keep keep the mood and the spirits up, but physically to keep us well, even if it's from a cardiovascular point of view. So that's my lecture for today. Um, and hopefully we can continue that well into 2021. Yeah, well, to be fair, I couldn't agree more to there, Louise. Very, very good words. Um, not so good for Celtic. 1-0 down now at Rangers. Own goal by Callum McGregor after Bitten was sent off. Shane Duffy um, is on, but he's on a yellow card. And it effectively looks like Celtic's title hopes are somewhat in tatters. Um, I want to get you, the three of you guys, on rugby um, and where rugby is going into 2021. I guess we can talk from an Irish perspective in terms of the Midland 2020 that uh, the Irish team had. The women's game is all over the shop at the moment because of the repercussions of COVID. But starting with you, Louise, um, I was 
very, very, um, I was sickened really to, to read, um, you know, the, the Steve Thompson stuff later on in the year. Mm. And, you know, just, just it was literally just doing a little bit of a Google search here. Um, these are some of the headlines that I came up with just on the break there. Um, reporting on rugby's dementia crisis struck all too close to home from The Guardian. Uh, two more players named in players' dementia action. Uh, dementia and former rugby players, horrendous RPA chief. What now for rugby as dementia risks become clearer? Um, you're very well um, versed to, to talk about this from the perspective of, of coming back, coming from a rugby background. Um, it was harrowing stuff, I, I, I thought, anyway. Yeah, and just to give a bit of context for anyone that hasn't, I suppose, heard beyond the headlines. I mean, Steve Thompson, he's basically saying he won, he won the World Cup with England in 2003. He was a hooker. He can't remember. He can't remember winning the World Cup. Um, and that is because he's now being diagnosed with early onset dementia, which he's relating back to his rugby days. So that's that's incredible. Um it is very, very disheartening and it's very, very worrying. Um, now, I guess from someone who's come away from, just stepped away from the professional side of the game in terms of sevens rugby, the game has been continuously evolving and ha the safety element has been taken more and more serious. Um, certainly as players, you we would have been told more and more and um, thought we all have to take modules and you go to a tournament, you sit down and you, you listen to World Rugby talk to you about um, even recognise, remove from a player point of view that if you see a teammate, like it's become more and more, I suppose, important. But I guess what we want is to try and prevent concussions happening in the first place. Um, and I think, you know, with the tackle height, that certainly has been something that World Rugby are trying to implement. They're constant, continuously trying to uh, like last year, the real buzz buzzword um, was tackle height coming into the Rugby World Cup. Um, after the Rugby World Cup, it was all about the rock area. Um, and coming into this season, 2021, it was all about kind of that rock, that clear out. Um, so, is, is, again, it, is it not though quite simple that the players, the way they're built at the moment with the game as it's been played for years and years and years, if you add in... Jim, um, Jim, kind of beefed up characters into the mix. A game that's really forward heavy. You're kind. It is a ticking time bomb, regardless of what tinkering you do with the rules. This is just going to be, um, you know, it's just going to be the case that you're going to get serious head injuries. Yeah, look, it's a collision sport. So, and again, it's it's a bit like Steve Thompson said. I, I knew my body would be wrecked, but I didn't think my mind would yeah, be as well. Yeah, exactly. And. Anyone that goes into it ex probably expects to a certain extent the level of um, damage that their body is going to take. But it is this this is new. This is um, this is really, really worrying. And it is something that World Rugby are going to have to take um, a very serious stance on and look at the game. Because, I mean, what do you do? Do you put a limit on how how big Maro Toje gets or how mm. powerful he gets? Like that's, you know, that's not really the answer either. Um, or it's it's not really, you just can't do that. So, is it going to become a game with fewer players and just become basically more a game for backs than forwards and just take away the competitive, um, the, the the hard upfront stuff? Or but, what, what's going to happen? We have that in sevens. We yeah. have that in sevens rugby. And to be honest, if you look at world rugby injury surveillance studies, there are just as many injuries in sevens. Maybe not, maybe not quite as much head injuries because you still have very big, strong physical players, and this is a male and females, coming at each other, but they're coming at each other at more speed. So the collision, the G-force, versus two props who are bigger, but actually not as much speed and not coming from as much of a, dis of a distance, there's just as many rugby injuries in sevens. It's just they're slightly different. Okay. Um, so I don't think that's the answer because we have a game for that. We have sevens. Um, 
I'm not really sure what the answer is, but it's it's certainly worrying and um, the fact that more players are coming out with it. Because, I mean, you could always say one person developing early onset dementia, well, there, there's a, is there a family history there? But it's mm. there's more and more people coming out now. Um, yeah. But the, I have to say, World Rugby, they have changed even since 2003 the whole um the hias brought in players do scat tests from the beginning of the year um it's very much recognized and removed and even from a player point of view as i say you're very much encouraged and it has happened in my squad where you say i we've said to the physio so and so is not right or you know they need to be checked out because i think the message is very much getting across this is this is more important than a game I was, I was talking to a friend of mine, Dave, over the Christmas, and he was telling me about a wedding that he was at, and he said one of the guests at the wedding was um, an old Irish rugby international, and I think it came to 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening, and he just had to go up to bed because his body was in bits just from kind of standing and mingling with people. Um, would you like your kids to play rugby? In terms of the games it is at the moment, probably not. Um, I mean, there's so many different aspects to this. The generation of players that were that straddled the old amateur era and the professional era from two, from 1996 onwards, they were always going to be the guinea pigs. And unfortunately, it does appear that the worst case scenario is starting to unfold, that these players who are now are entering their 50s and 60s in some cases that would have played, say, between 95 and 2008 or so, when the tweaks to the rules, the HIA protocols that have been brought in, the presence of independent doctors at games, they really hadn't been brought in place. Educationally, the game wasn't where it is now. Mm. And these but players did, did, did you not know at the time, Dave, even watching, anyone watching the game must have had, you said the word guinea pigs there, would they not have had serious fears? Oh, like in Thompson saying, oh, I knew my body was going to be wrecked. And I always worried about that for players. I, did, I wasn't even thinking about the head aspect to it or the dementia potential. Like, w- did they not somehow have great fears as to where this was going to go? Well, the difference between the, your body being wrecked is that that's something that you can very physically see. And medically, there are probably just about fixes that you can put in place for pretty much every injury now i know or there got there are guys who've had their careers ended early there are guys that maybe to get to their 40s and 50s and they're suffering from arthritis with mm. a dodgy knee or an elbow and the joints and yes i know their quality of life is probably significantly diminished but the situation with the head injuries is very different in that it's not something that you can fix it's not something that's immediately visible and it's not really something that you can take out of the game unless there's a radical overhaul of the rules. And it just depends on how seriously World Rugby and the powers that be and the stakeholders and not just the governors of the game, but the stakeholders is in Pro 14 Rugby, the EPCR, the Premiership Rugby, the Eleanor and the in, the in France. And are you willing to, for example, reduce their tackle height from the waist down? And that will mm. take an awful lot of the collisions out. I played rugby for several years as a school child and we were never told to dislodge the ball when we were making a tackle. We were told to get low, to put your head behind the backside of the ball carrier and to take him down around the knees or the ankles. And that was drilled into us time and time again. And this is back in the early 90s. The other result of tweaking the tackle height would be that would there would be far more offloads, which means there would be far mm. fewer rucks, there would be an awful lot less contact, there would be uh, the ball in play time would be far greater, which means players would tire more quickly, so there would there again be more space. You, Louise mentioned, I know we're getting technical now, but Louise mentioned the clear-outs and some of these absolutely brutal clear-outs that mm. you see nowadays. The, the human body is not designed to play rugby in that sort of an environment. You can definitely tweak the rules to ensure that you reduce the number of rucks and clear 
clear outs in that regard. And this situation where we have eight subs in the professional game is absolutely ridiculous, particularly mm. when you see the 55, 60 minute mark and you see it an awful lot of French rugby. These gargantuan guys who are overweight, they're not fit. They're only asking their bodies to be able to put another 20 to 25 minutes into it. So you've got tired guys up against these huge men and that is going to lead and has done to significant injuries where if you have only three or four subs, the players who start the game are going to get increasingly fatigued. They're not going to be able to put themselves around the pitches in this, to the same extent to the last quarters or the first three quarters. There again, more space, more tries, more offloads, fewer tackles, fewer rooks, fewer clear outs. It's just depending on how radical World Rugby are willing to be. Sticking to the oval ball game very briefly, um, by all accounts, uh, Duffy's been sent off for Celtic for what was a glorified rugby challenge, really, a last-ditch challenge on um, Morales. And I'm really looking forward to... um, He may not have gotten a red card. I think I might have my information wrong here, actually. We've only one red card in the game. But I am looking forward to talking about Duffy with the lads um, later on on the football show, just where his future is for Ireland. It's still Rangers 1, Celtic 0, and it's still Tottenham 3. Yeah, Duffy's just on a yellow card, bitten with the red card. It's still uh, Rangers 1, Celtic 0. Celtic have like two minutes and extra time and injury time to sort this out. Um... I don't know if you want to come in on this, Timmy. I know you, you had a son who was a very good sportsman himself. And um, Where do you see the rugby game going? Well, Johnny, I suppose, listening to Louise and, and Dave, I'm glad I played basketball. That's <laughs> not rugby. But I think we've got to be careful and just highlighting rugby because, first of all, you know, we talk about the physique of people today as against the physique of people. Like, Thompson played 20 years ago, almost like. So, you know, that, so that, that's a factor. NFL have had, had this issue and you know, for many, many years. They're now saying that five of English teams won the World Cup all um, suffer from dementia, from heading football. So, you know, like, there's no doubt that you know, we're now putting the human body in a sporting context through things that, you know, as, as time has evolved, it's been asked more and more uh, of, of athletes and, and, and of, of players. So I think in the rugby sense, I think the challenge is that they've got to make the game as safe as they possibly can, which they're trying to do and tinkering around uh, the edges. But the reality is it's a contact sport, okay? It's like in, in a hurling, they're brought in helmets, you know, to deal with, to, to deal with the, the, the head injuries that, that were happening there. Um, American football has helmets. But it is, rugby is a contact sport. There's no way around it. And if you want rugby to play it with 15 players, okay, um, you're going to have to have contact. Whether you give them eight subs, 10 subs, 12 subs, you're still going to have contact. And the sad thing is that you know, sometimes there's a price you have to pay if you want to compete at the highest level. And, you know, Louise has played rugby, obviously, at a professional level, so she's no better than any of the rest of us in this conversation. But there is a price you have to pay. And if you decide to play rugby at that level, that's one of the risks that you have to consider maybe part of your journey. And, you know, like Nobby Styles recently passed away, the rest of the it. You know, he mm. was diagnosed with dementia. Jack Charlton, they reckon, had dementia. Bobby Charlton was diagnosed. So, you know, it's coming... More technology advances in medication and medicine is highlighting the fact that sport has impacts uh, on all of us in different ways. It's, in, in rugby, it's highlighted right now because of Steve Thompson and the current one. The NFL went through this, and there was lawsuits for many years, um, and they still kept playing, and they made some tweaks around the edges. So my view in any sport, whether it's basketball, rugby, or Gaelic football, or any other sport, there are, there are actions that, um, that, that have um, consequences, and obviously in the stronger contact sports, 
there are bigger consequences and bigger actions that you have to consider. Yeah, James O'Toole in Galway, um, stalwart of Galway United uh, down the years, who, um, like Louise, is coming from the that the profession of the, the phys physio and medics, until the medics have the full permission to make the decision with no consequence to their position, uh, the concussion debate will go on in colleges in the States. The medical staff have that power. Uh, in Ireland, the power lies with the management and player, and, and that's a big issue. We will have to move on because we are um, getting into um, the heart of the show here. Um, I, I know somebody you want to talk about, Timmy, um, is Becky Hammond. Now, this is, this is a fascinating one for me because just the idea of... Um, female coaches in, in, in the men's professional game is, is just so much in its infancy and we saw Lisa Fallon being something of a trailblazer at Cork City and moving on to progress her career in England. She's done plenty of media work as well um, but this is something that would never have been countenanced certainly when, for, for many years when I was younger um, but there, you know, there's been groundbreaking um, activity in terms of uh, this coach making it in the NBA. I think this is a brilliant story. So first of all, I came across Becky Hamill for the first time in the 2008 Olympics when she elected. She's American, okay? So she's American, born and bred, and played WNBA, was six, uh, six times all-star in the WNBA, was considered too small by most of the colleges in high school. Um, so she actually went, went to Colorado State, which would have been a small college. And then um, she wanted to play in the Olympics, and the U.S. didn't pick her. So she naturalized yeah. Russia for Russia and played for Russia in the 2008 games and the 2012 games. So, you know, she was controversial at that point in time, but she went to New York Liberty and then she went to San Antonio in the in the WNBA. And, um, she then uh, she wanted to become a coach. And I just saw something that I came across about Becky Hammond pre before what developed this week was uh, Paul Gasol, a Spanish guy who played with the Lakers in San Antonio, um, brilliant basketball player. He said a point, Becky Hammond can coach in NBA basketball, period. So this week, for the first time in the history of professional basketball uh, in the States, uh, she's assistant coach to Greg Popovich. He got dismissed for two technical fouls. So he got ejected in the second quarter, and she acted as head coach. It's the first time in the history of the NBA, and I think it's a brilliant development because, okay, gender doesn't determine what you can coach. You can coach any sport, in my view, uh, if you have a technical um, and managerial and personal uh, ability to lead people and motivate people and you know s set strategies and so I was absolutely thrilled, Johnny, when I when I read about this this week and I did want to talk about it because I think that it's the first on a really top class stage the NBA. I mean, I know Lisa Fallon did it for Cork City, but at a lower level, I would argue, right? This is in the top of the top of the sport in basketball worldwide, one of the, the second largest sport in the world. And I just think that it, it should open the door for many more females to coach uh, men's teams because we, we coach women's teams and nobody has an issue with that. Yeah. So I think it's a brilliant move. I think it's a brilliant move. I think she's an exceptional lady. She was a phenomenal player. And from, what, from one or two people I spoke to, she's an exceptional coach. And the fact that she has actually coached uh, a game now will mean that you know, it should open opportunities for more people. Well, this was... I, I, I have to agree. I thought this was a... Brilliant story, Louise, and there is no doubt whatsoever, if you put a woman coach into a men's dressing room, she has to prove herself like a man doesn't. And we even saw the Karen Carney situation this week where uh, Karen, obviously an ex-international, um, she made a fairly anodyne comment about Leeds um, in terms of winning the championship last year and being helped by the COVID situation. But um, Leeds kind of tweeted a 
I suppose the Leeds official account tweeted um, questioning what she said and it, it basically followed that she got an absolute barrage of abuse, much of it sexist, and she subsequently deleted her Twitter account. Um, so that's one kind of bad news story in terms of um, this, this issue, but the, the story that Timmy brought up is certainly heartwarming, Louise. Yeah, it definitely is and very, very encouraging for someone like myself to see that. Um, I suppose 2020 also was the culmination of the 20 by 20 Can't See, Can't Be campaign here in mm -hmm. Ireland. Um, and one of the goals of that was to see a 20% increase in obviously participation, but also not just in playing numbers of females, but in um, board memberships and in coaching. And I actually think they're one of the harder, I suppose, numbers to get to because you can you can raise participation numbers easier. Um, but it's very difficult for women to try and break that glass barrier if they can't, if someone hasn't done it before them. And it has been shown, whether it's in business, whether it's in sport, um, if when you go into a male-dominated environment, if a female has a kind of a, a manager or a role model ahead of them, um, they're much more likely to um, to reach that level themselves. So we we really do need to see, um, I suppose, these women in these roles. And as, as Timmy said, it's nothing to do with gender. Um, and I think what's important is when I was reading about Becky, she was saying, well, uh, to be honest, I wish we won. Now they're playing against the Lakers. It was LeBron James' birthday. I think they were they were pretty much up against it anyway. Um <laughs> But that's, I mean, that's what it really comes down to. She's just a competitive individual. She is, she's a coach um, down the line. I hope the more and more we can drop gender, um, as in, you know, for example, not calling her a female coach, that would be a success from my point of view as well. But um, even to see someone like her there breaking that glass barrier um, so that other people can look up to it, it's huge. And people like Lisa Fallon here as well, doing it for for from a more kind of an Irish um, visibility point of view, it's it's phenomenal. But I think we're seeing a lot more females talking about sport, whether it's on your own platform or in general mm. social media um, or the general media. And for I from I gave them when the RT were um, announcing their sports uh, programming this year. I think they had four kind of main sports anchors and three were female. And it's just the way it is. They are their three three of their main presenters, and they're they're pretty damn good at their job. Um, so they deserve to be there. But it, I remember noting things. God, that's actually that's class. Like three quarters of, of the main sports anchors in RT are female. That's brilliant. That's, yeah, that's phenomenal. Sign the times. 56,114 uh, 56, at Dublin versus Galway in 2019. Um, who would have thought it? An absolutely staggering crowd. And I think, Dave, I, I definitely think uh, women's sport is going to explode over the next 10 or 20 years. I think, you know, younger girls uh, will, will stick with the sport longer. They'll have major aspirations in terms of potentially making it as a professional in that sphere. And even I've noticed, like, the last year or two, media coverage has, has exploded in terms of the women's international team, um, just ladies, Gaelic football, camogie and so forth. And um, this has been a really positive development, I think. It, it really has. In some cases, it is, it is still a trickle. Like We do see people mm. maybe like Joy Neville and Sean Massey in terms of sports officials who are blazing a trail and trying to break through that glass ceiling, but there are still very few in that sort of position. And whenever we get into a conversation around women's involvement in these sorts of roles, very often, and look, you can't legislate for the, the dinosaurs out there and, and stupidity, really, because there will always be a proportion of the population that fall into that sort of a category. But one of them that's given in terms of female punditry, for example, is well, what would they know? They never played the game to that level. They don't really have a right to be able to give their opinion in that sort of an environment. Or, or if you 
extend it to the coaching situation, you would hear a similar argument. But you look at someone like Jose Mourinho, Arsene Wenger, Nagelsmann in Germany, Tuchel in Germany. These are guys that never played football at any significantly level, significant level of a high standard. And yet they're heralded as some of the greatest coaches in the world. If someone's able to get their ideas across, if someone's able to make a player, be they male or female, a better player by virtue of their coaching ability, gender really shouldn't come into it. But it goes back to the first black player to play baseball, the yeah. first black player in the NFL, the first black player to play in the English top flight, the first gay man to come out as gay during his professional career, which is something that we haven't seen yet across European football. These are all the ceilings that have to be smashed through in order for some level of normality to develop around it. We're nowhere near that as regards mm -hmm. the participation of females in sport at the moment. You would hope, and as you said, it is getting better and that there will be an explosion in terms of the amount of girls and in, in their teens, for example, that want to continue playing that there would have been maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, that we will see a massive difference yeah. in it. But it is going a bit too slowly at the moment. I think the potential for it to improve is still there and for the speed of the improvement to really be ramped up in the next 10 years or so. I think I think you made some great points there, um, Dave, particularly about you know gay people coming out in sport, which clearly is, is completely under um, you know report in terms of you know too many players obviously afraid or unwilling in, in their sphere to do it but just going back to you on that Louise from your perspective if you were sort of put into that situation where you were coaching a, a senior males team um, in a one-off situation any sort of situation would you feel um, would you feel under pressure would you feel under any sort of um, intimidation to to do it or would you feel like I'm well up to this I can do it um, I'm here because I'm capable of doing the job um, I think it's can depend. Certainly in my earlier days, particularly doing um, media or doing coverage for like the Rugby World Cup, there was this element of imposter syndrome and mm. trying to trying Prove to yourself. win over the room. Yeah, because mm. you feel you're coming in not just with your own uh, reputation, but you're actually have a whole gender's reputation <laughs> because in some ways you get a, an easy slap in the back for kind of, oh, th she actually knew a little bit about that. Which is patronising. Which is very patronising. Yeah, God, like give me mm. grief. But at the same time, it's very quick that you get the kick up the backside as well of, oh, sure, what are they women on talking about it? So you are going in. And I think that actually made me probably quite prepared. Like Peter Stringer used to laugh the amount of notes I was taking. Like, I was kind of saying, like, Peter, I have a whole gender relying on me to do yeah. well here. So there is an element of having more pressure on top of you. You feel you're representing a lot more than just yourself. Um, and the same with going into a coaching environment. But I think from that point of view, I certainly, I probably have more confidence now from doing that. I know I, I was asked to do my local male minor football team take a session from the coaches club down here in Finuig. In Finu yeah. And um, uh, I was kind of saying, well, do you not want Donica and my husband to do it instead who has a few all-Ireland medals? They said, no, we want you to come and, and take the lads. And sometimes you do need a bit of um, a, a bit of a, uh, I suppose, are you sure you want me to do it? And then if you do, that's fine. But you know, I'll, I'll do it to the best of my ability. But there can be a little bit at, at times of kind of this imposter syndrome. Mm. Uh, but most of the time, like we're here, we're chatting about sports. Uh, I don't have a, a female hat on me or a, a male hat on you guys. We're just we're just talking about it. I'm sure there's people out there that are wondering why I'm on speaking at the moment. But um, those who mind don't matter. Those who matter don't mind that I don't really be uh, too worried about those sort of people. It's about whether the points I'm making are, are valid and um, and insightful is what's most important. Yeah, we'll have to keep out, keep an eye out for the Fanoog miners, is it? 
Yeah, yeah. That's a, a growth industry, no doubt. I want to get the three of you, your kind of hopes and aspirations for sports, your, I suppose, a personal choice for 2021. And um, before that, just on this issue, I want to mention racing. I think it's coming from a racing perspective. I think it's something that the sport doesn't nearly sell itself well enough in the sense that you've Holly Doyle, Rachel Blackmore, essentially competing against the males on, on a level playing field and being basically the best, like being, if not the best, in the top three or four in their sphere. You have what Nina Carberry did, Katie Walsh, Jessica Harrington in the training game, Francis Crowley winning classics. Um, 50-50 split in terms of staff and racing and effectively we're nearly at a situation in racing where nobody cares to be honest you're just a lot of horses respond better to female jockeys as a general rule and uh, we have pin-up girls in racing but they're pin-up girls because they're just amazingly good at their sport and I think it's it's something that we don't sell ourselves enough in and um, you can't have all counties you can't have all counties having the same budget when the population is so disproportionate simple idea the provincial championship is becoming a joke apart from Ulster so turn the league February to March into the Provincials then make the Championship into a Champions League format. Eight groups of four so everyone guaranteed lots of games. Top two into the last 16 etc. Bottom two going to a play tournament very similar to what Timmy was saying. Be good to see random names as opposed to usual games served up. The GA needs to change or people will turn off and that's Connor in Dublin. We can only speculate as to whether he's actually from Dublin or not. Folks, not enough counties tap into their diaspora. Leitrim did in the 90s with Declan Darcy memorably. That's an unbelievable story of them winning the Connacht Championship and Declan Darcy he helped him to a Connacht title in 94 with regard to women's GA sports. Uh, Cork won 10 titles in an 11 year span. Nobody called them to be broken into two, three, or four bits. And that is from, I'll just get that text name in a moment. Um, yeah, so we're starting with you actually, Timmy, for your hopes uh, for sports, your, your main hope for 2021. Main hope for 2021 is that uh, the vaccination program works and that sport, uh, as we know it, returns to what what it was pre-COVID. And, you know, it's in all sports, in all sports. For me, for me I, I suppose, in individual sport point of view, what I'd love to see is, I'd love to see that um, Cork would compete again very seriously, which I do believe they will in the hurling, and that we progress um, out of Division 2 in the football. De- uh, Dave, rather? Uh, well, in a general sense, I really just want to see crowds back at games. Mm. Um, and I think anyone who watches sport, goes to see sporting events, love their sport, just desperately wants to see an end to the empty stadium. But in specific terms, I really want the Republic of Ireland men's team to score a goal. <laughs> and I'll be, I'm desperate for them to get a good start to the World Cup qualifying campaign, which starts in the spring, because I think the right appointment was made when it was made. I think the backroom team that is there is capable of doing a really good job. And I just hope that they've used up all of their bad luck in a three-month spell and that will start to improve from here and that by the end of 2021 Stephen Kenny and his backroom team will have an awful lot more to shout about than they do now. Yeah, I mean, the Saw Doctors might welcome out with a song to score just once. I mean, because it was like watching the, watching the showreel of the highlights of goals from 2020, which was literally Duffy's header, um, I don't know. Uh, are we are we getting there, Louise, in that score with the the international team? Um, have you taken much of an interest in the in the Stephen Kenny revolution, of which I'm a disciple still? Yeah, it's been a, a pretty bit, a tough uh, campaign for him. Obviously, one thing is just not securing um, qualification, but actually, this whole it nearly becomes a, an elephant in the room then mm. of not scoring the goal um, and then there was kind of the media issues of leaking kind of what was going on in the dressing room was never a good sign either and again it's 
whatever about what was said, it's that you've someone in that dressing room environment who's breaching the confidences from a player's point of view is what I would consider most more worrying there. So it's certainly um, a battle for the Irish football team going into 2021 to improve on where they're at. And as well, we have to mention that the women's team like that Ukraine game was just heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, particularly someone like Anya O'Gorman of Met4 as well. Um, she's a top-class player, a top-class individual. For to be her OG is just devastating. Um, but I think talking about uh, female coaches, Vera Powell, certainly from someone who is not a soccer player at all, from um, from a distance, she seems like an impressive individual. So the longer that they can keep her, from what I can see, involved, um, the better for women's football in Ireland. Um, and I guess my own hope for 2021, um, Johnny, is I'm, I'm quite concerned for the sports outside of the big three. Um, and we didn't even get to chat to them that much there. But the likes of basketball, I know, Timmy McCarthy, we don't have our leagues back up and running. Yep. Um, that Basically, the, the sports are the indoor sports that don't have as much money behind them um, that as we come hopefully out of this pandemic and we have vaccinating, vaccinations rolling out, you know, I would implore to anyone, um, if you're in your local town or village or city and your local sports club, you know, not saying not don't give it to GA or rugby or soccer, but if you're a local club that isn't maybe one of the big three in particular and you're not involved with them, but if they're fundraising or whatever they are, they're doing a lot for your locality as well. So maybe throw them a few quid because certainly, or, or look, help, look to volunteer because they're going to struggle and they're very, very important um, for our whole country. You want to come in on that, Timmy? Yeah, I, I fully agree with the point about the minority sports. I mean, and that's my, what I said at the start. You know, this COVID um, has really hurt so many people in, in personally, but obviously in sport. These sports have got a raw deal. I mean, you know, like in basketball, they were professional basketball players playing with each, with each team, with amateurs, and they've been shut down. They took the first action and shut the league down in fairness to them you know, in March, so that they were proactive. And because of their proactiveness, they really got hammered. And, you know, like, they're still not allowed playing. And, you know, when, when you know, the GA successfully ran their program um, for the for the hurling and, and, and football, with, with the exception of Sligo, everybody got to play and, you know, the, the uh, tournaments were finished. Why should basketball be treated differently? And it's treated differently because it's minority sport. Mm. And that's not fair, Johnny. Like, the, the reality is that, you know, the, there are people down, I mean, I, I had a great period of my life coaching three to win a Super League title in the 90s and you know the joy that that brought at that point in time Louise in, in, in Trillie was amazing yeah. you know and I was watching the St Mary's Castle Island um, Blitz final that we played against Killarney on uh, YouTube year night and just looking at a packed hall you know they love, their, people, they love their basketball in Castle Island yeah, and, and, and Johnny, so why should we shut down? Because they're not one of the big three or four. I mean, we didn't shut racing down, we didn't shut GA down, we didn't shut soccer down, and we didn't shut rugby down. And we shouldn't shut them down. Is it you the should, indoor yeah. aspect to it? Well, I, I think you can always, I mean, you can always find a, a, a reason to shut somebody down or not. And that's the, the reality is they talked about elite athletes. The basketball players that say are elite athletes, they should be treated no differently. If, if you want to separate elitism, then you've got to be very careful. And what they're saying really now to minority sports is you are not elite. And that's wrong in my view. Mm. Uh, Tottenham 3 leads nil and Rangers 1. Celtic nil. I think there you hear it, the, the end of uh, Celtic's title challenge. I suppose, lastly, guys, in one sentence, your, your advice to people struggling at the start of January to motivate themselves to, to do something in 2021, starting with you, Louise. The hardest thing is to start, so just take... Take that, um, just make, try and make the start. That's the hardest bit. Dave? Don't set your goals too far 
I don't. It's very difficult to achieve something that really isn't achievable, and I think people are asking an awful lot of themselves, and they're being way too hard on themselves. Timmy summed it up very early in this chat. Just don't look beyond today. Do what you can today, because tomorrow it may be a struggle. But if you can get through today and make it as good a day as you possibly can, that's a good start. Get out and walk a mile or two miles or three miles today. It's something. Get your heart rate up just that little bit. Tomorrow you'll feel some sense of achievement and you can try and go that little step further. But don't ask too much of yourself because mentally and physically, I think people are comparing themselves to others way too often. You can only do what you can do yourself. Timmy? So I would ask people at the end of every day that they go to a mirror and look at themselves and instead of saying, I wish I had done whatever they had done during the day, be able to look at themselves straight in the eye and say, I'm glad I did. And if we all were glad we did whatever we did on the day, we'd all be a little bit happier every day. The Saturday Panel on Off The Ball.